A few months ago, I asked um, Bob Grauman to speak twice during December, um, partly because I was going to be having a kid. Some of you know that I have a four-week-old who has is, is already showed that she's really gifted at crying. And... Um, and so, um, and I also wanted to have another voice. I try to not preach um, here at least 12 weeks a year. And I was at 10, and I just really thought it would be great to have a little time. And um, so I invited Bob to speak two weeks. He spoke last week, but you, as he told you, he was in the hospital. He had bleeding ulcers. And he has a really important job. A bunch of these university folks who put on Urbana, which happens later in December, this big missions conference for young people. They've got a lot that they're leading up to right now. And so I think as I told Bob, I was like, listen, rest. Urbana is the priority, not covering for me on Sunday morning. And he said, well, I've got, I have another speaker. I'll just have him come and speak. So um, that is sort of the provenience of um, Adam Jeske speaking for us this morning. Um, so, uh, so here, here's what you, you need to know. Uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I met Adam this morning. I have no, I, I didn't even know who he was um, earlier this week, but um, so this is totally on Bob, Okay. Bob's, Bob's reputation is, is up on the, on the block, so his, he, he, which means the stock could go way up or, or way down. So um, anyway, uh, so let me told you, tell you what I, they told me about Adam. And um, so he's a, he's a member of the Vine Church, which is a ch- another church plant in town. I've met their pastors. They're great guys um, here in Madison. He's Associate Director of Communications at InterVarsity. He's a member of the leadership team of the Urbana Student Missions Conference, which is one of the largest um, uh, missions conferences for students. It may be by far the largest. I don't know, so I'm just trying to be nonspecific. Um, he co-authored a book called This Ordinary Adventure, Settling Down Without Settling, with his wife, which is kind of, which is kind of about being a missionary and then being a normal American thing, and how do you do that without being a big, dumb animal? And um, they, before they came here to Madison, they served in Nicaragua, China, and South Africa, and you're going to hear a little bit of that, that in his sermon. And also, they've got two kids, Phoebe and Zeke, and probably most relevant for those of you here today is that he's a UW grad. He had his undergraduate there in Spanish and religious studies. So, um, yeah, so we're really glad to have you. Adam, why don't you come and... and can we get the slides I might be wasting my life I've invested years overseas first in Nicaragua where my wife and I lived without electricity, without any, not just running water, but any water, only collected rainwater in some reservoirs and had that to bathe and cook with and things. Um, no transportation, and we, we tried to help there. I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, we spent two years in China teaching English and Western culture, trying to learn a difficult language and often feeling like outsiders. We lived uh, for three and a half years in South Africa. We directed a pilot microfinance project, um, also taught at a seminary. While we were there, we had uh, our truck broken into, we were robbed, I was pickpocketed, uh, I crashed my motorcycle, and my wife uh, on a Sunday morning jog came across a cadaver. Uh, and now we're back in Madison. Um, we take trips to Devil's Lake, we live in a fairly nice house. 
Uh, I could probably make more money uh, if I were in the business world, but um, I sometimes wonder if I'm more comfortable than I ought to be. Here in the U.S., it's hard to live out the extreme teachings of Jesus. Things were a lot more clear when we were overseas. And as we have come back into North American culture, we've found lots of friends wrestling with the same questions. We found friends who were um, dissatisfied with where they were at. People who thought I f- life was going to be different. Life was going to be more. Uh, there was going to be a, a clearer path for discipleship. And others have sort of wandered off from faith entirely. And um, they're disillusioned. So we wrote the book that was mentioned. And uh, it brings lessons from uh, the church overseas, the folks in hard places where we've served. But it's looking at how do we live out our faith here in the U.S. If the Bible isn't true, though... If this is just an opiate for the masses, if this is just to help me fear death less, if I could pray a prayer and then go on living the way that I want to live, then I'm wasting my life. I've gone through sicknesses. I've experienced a lot of uh, hard things. I've been very far from people that I love. Um, When we left for China, We had our newborn daughter uh, in the car. We pulled out from my parents' home, and we had to wave goodbye to my mom weeping over us taking her granddaughter to the other side of the planet. If any of these um, things that we believe to be true are not true, I'm really wasting a lot. So why have I lived so differently? Why am I risking this? And why do I continue to risk this? It's because the God of the Bible is on a mission. And he always has been. So what I want to do today is to look at how we know that in Scripture, briefly in the Old Testament, a few more passages in the New Testament, and then look at some stories from our life um, using things that we've written to sort of give some legs to that and then close very briefly at the end with some of the ideas of what I'm trying now. What are the things that I'm looking at now in terms of mission here in Madison? So God chose Abram in chapter 12. He said, I'm going to bless you and bless the whole world through you. Um, It's in Genesis 12. I will make you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God takes the initiative to choose the single man, the single people group that will come from him, and he's going to use them to bless all of humanity. It's a tremendous act of outreach. We see throughout the rest of the Old Testament from there this cycle of sin, of, uh, of discipline, of judgment, and then of restoration. It's in Isaiah, and it's in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the rest of the, the prophets. And through it all, God continues to pursue his covenant people. He lets them go into exile, but he restores them. Uh, he judges them. There's a faithful remnant. And you see these patterns throughout the Old Testament. 
But even in these passages where there's wandering and sin, where there's idolatry, where there's judgment, there's still hope. Last week in Isaiah 40, you heard Bob preach uh, um, uh, on verses 3 to 5, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is picked up by Luke in the third chapter of his gospel, applying it to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, of course. It's one of the passages in the liturgy for the second Sunday of Advent. So we see this cycle continuing, but then there's this message of hope, even in the midst of that cycle continuing, that there's going to be a Messiah. There's going to be a change in this cycle. It's not going to last. It's not always going to be this way. And that, that breaking of the cycle, of course, is the, the advent, the coming, the first coming of Jesus, the ultimate agent for redemption. And this is why we are starting to celebrate now. He's coming. God, in his amazing love, has made a way for us out of the cycle. Hallelujah. God is on a mission, and we are the ones who benefit from that. We are the recipients of God's mission. As the Father was on a mission throughout the Old Testament, so the Son articulated his mission as he came in, uh, in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is on a mission. Now, the name of Christian, of course, comes from Jesus Christ. And the way that that term came to be was at the, at the time, um, uh, followers of a leader would, would get their, that name applied to them with this ending, uh, this suffix. Um, like the Herodians are mentioned in Scripture, you probably recognize that name as followers of Herod, those who are like Herod or little Herods. In the same way, Christians are to be little Christs. That was, um, it was a little bit pejorative at the beginning, but eventually Christians took on that, that name and title as, as a worthwhile label. They owned it. And so if we are to be little Christs, we probably should join in Jesus' mission. So looking throughout the New Testament, we see this is a common theme. This isn't a rare picture that's only in a, a couple of little verses. Sometimes we focus in too much on small ideas in a limited number of passages, but mission is not one of them. It's everywhere. In John 20, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In some amazing way, the Father sent the Son to us, And in the same fashion, Jesus sent his disciples. And 
the progression continues throughout the generations of the church down to us today so that in the same fashion as the Father sent the Son, we are also sent. In Luke 14, Jesus said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We ought not lose the extremity of an instrument of torture as the emblem for our faith. We are to willfully die for the one who willfully died for us. In John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. It's popular in our culture to say Jesus was a good teacher, Jesus was a great man. Oh, I really like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Um, you can't really say any of those things if you want to be consistent with what Jesus himself said, taught, and lived. In James, we read, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There is no option but obedience. There is no option but action. Now, before you get too alarmed at where my theology may be taking us, I want us to look at a familiar passage that's very important, Ephesians 2. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So, while obedience is required and inaction is not an option, it's by grace. Our salvation is not earned. Our salvation is not deserved. It's grace from beginning to end. It is a gift. We merely receive it. However, I think in the church we often stop here at verse 9 rather than carrying on to verse 10, which is pretty important. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are created to do good works, and God has them all set and ready and laid out for us. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to figure out exactly which ones he wants us to do. However, they're there, and our job is to do them. Our reason for being alive, for being here, is to do those good works that God has prepared for us. God has a task list for us. Philippians 2, Paul wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The good works which we are to do are to benefit other people. We need a radical priority on others. And I think 1 Corinthians 6.20 is a really good capstone verse that brings a lot of this together. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. If you really need the Savior that we remember the coming of during Advent, you are not your own. So, if you're not joining in God's mission, you're not really following Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus, what does it mean to say you're a Christian? I don't think you're fooling anybody. 
You're not pointing people to Jesus. You're not a little Christ. So, this time of year, at a church like High Point, I would expect that there's a few people here, at least, who are not Christians. And I would say, welcome. What a great week to be here. Um, Christians tell non-Christians a lot of great things. Jesus is going to be your best friend. You're going to experience more joy and freedom than ever before. You get to go to heaven. All true. However, sometimes we stop short. Um, If you're not following Jesus yet, your life is not your own. You are a sinner. You might be almost as sinful as me. You need to acknowledge that. And you need to acknowledge that you need Jesus and the power of his resurrection in your life. And if you've never really done that, you can do that today. You can talk to me or the person who invited you or somebody that you've seen up front to talk to you afterward. You can go to the uh, um, thing on Wednesday, kind of investigating the church, meet some of the leaders. Great stuff. If you are a Christian, I think it's important that you're honest with your friends as you tell them about your faith. Tell them the good news, the great news of Jesus. That you don't just give them the good news. They need to know the whole story. Um, I work for InterVarsity, leading our social media team, which means that, uh, like most of you, uh, I'm on Facebook all day at work. The difference is that I get paid to. Um, I get to hear a lot of stories because of that from across the country, chapters and staff members and whatnot. And what we've learned um, through those stories and from our work at Urbana and other student conferences, that the hardest, most intense calls to discipleship, to faith, to a life fully given to Jesus because he gave his life for us, those are the calls that often do the best, that get remembered, that get shared, uh, that get retweeted. If you set the bar low when you invite someone to be a Christian, you probably shouldn't expect much now or in the future. But if you set the bar high, where it is in the Bible, with your great sin and even more incredible grace and an incredibly hard call to give your life in every way over to Jesus, to do the good works that have been prepared in advance for you to do, then some truly amazing things can happen. So, um, like was mentioned, Bob Grauman and I and Dan Pinka and Laura Lee and I think I saw some others, um, other InterVarsity folks who work on Urbana are here. Um, I'm going to show a video in a sec about that. We've all been working really hard on this, and it happens every three years. It's for five days, the end of this month, down in St. Louis. And um, there's 150 seminars, 250 uh, missions organizations. Last time, about 2,500 people committed to give uh, at least a year of their life to missions. Uh, We'll be studying the Gospel of Luke. There's amazing multi-ethnic worship with 16, 18,000 people. And uh, registration's still open, so you're welcome to come if uh, you're considering what the Lord wants you to do with your life or what your role in God's global mission may be. Um, And that includes if you're looking for a second or third or fourth or fifth career. It's not only for students. 
Um, so can we roll the video? God is doing a new work and he's already stirring the waters and a new generation of missionaries is arising. The question today is, will you be that radical missionary? Will you leave your homogeneous comfort zones to be a part of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational family of God? And I hope somebody tonight will just say yes. This is the language fit for the king. Your Majesty. Yes, Your Majesty, King Jesus. Nothing less, nothing more. Jesus is King. If you don't go, people like you who come to a conference like this in prime vacation time, if you don't go, who will? Someone that's never been to a conference like this? Someone that's never heard a challenge or heard a missionary speaker or watched a video? And the word of God says to whom much is given, much is expected. We have been called to serve the Lord. And we have not been called to serve the Lord next year, 1991. We have not been called to serve the Lord 10 years down the line when you start your mission service. You and I have been called by God to serve him right now wherever we are. In the campuses throughout the land. In the universities around the world in the byways and in the alleys and the avenues and main streets of whatever city you come from. You and I have been called to take the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world to whoever needs it. Give your life to Jesus. No matter what you're like and no matter what you think you can do or can't do, he wants to take you tonight. He wants to fill you with himself and he wants to use you to do the work of his kingdom. Why haven't we got the needed laborers? Why are you hesitating? Is it because our God has become too small and you're scared you couldn't get through with it? Then we understand that the job of the Christian is to go into Satan's world as a fifth columnist, as an agent of the kingdom of God to preach liberty and justice to the captives, to set at liberty those that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Simply, the message of the Christian church is that Christ, the liberator, has come. I want you tonight to count the cost. Don't you come lightly to Jesus Christ to offer your life. I'm ready to enter the conflict of the 1960s. I'm ready to go to India, to Africa, to South America. I'm willing to stay home. I'm willing to be expendable. I'm willing to die. These are the things that we've found really um, motivating to students, most memorable, and most important, um, the intense stuff. 
It's worth saying that uh, Dan Pinka's team who made that video are a bunch of amazing, amazing artists and craftspeople who produce messages that affect a lot of lives. And so, um, yeah, give Dan a pat on the back when you see him later. Um, my wife wrote a book called Into the Mud, Inspiration for Everyday Activists, True Stories of Africa, about friends of ours in South Africa. This came out a couple of years ago. And I wanted to share um, a story from this book and a story from our, our book together, our new book, uh, to show some of what mission looks like out there, um, sort of firsthand missions stories. Uh, the friend that I wanted to talk about from Into the Mud is named Tembi. Tembi is a woman that we met who uh, was the youngest of about a dozen kids. Her father died when she was two weeks old, and her mom had to go away to Johannesburg to, to work. Um, so she, Tembi was sent to live with her aunt. And it was sort of a Cinderella arrangement and not in a good way. Um, she had six older cousins who were really mean to her and her aunt was a wicked woman. It was so bad that Tembi often slept outside uh, just so she wouldn't have to face her extended family. Um, she wouldn't go in the home. And um, it got worse and worse until her aunt uh, accepted payment from a man in the community who wanted to rape Tembi. And uh, Tembi came home one evening, and he was inside the home, and um, he attacked her, and she scratched and bit and screamed her way out of there and ran. The next day, she ate rat poison. Tembi wanted to die. In the hospital over the next weeks, she wished she didn't have oxygen tubes in her because she wanted to yell, Why did you save me? There was no fairy godmother and no prince for Tembi. Instead, she credited God for freeing her. Tembi's mother returned to work, but social welfare workers found a new home for Tembi with a neighbor of her aunt, a Christian woman who took her to a church that surrounded her with love and counsel. In time, Tembi began to let go of her anger at God, her mother, her aunt, and the world. As she grieved for wrongs committed against her, she saw that God also grieved. Eventually, she entrusted God with her future, her wishes, and her whole life. Having found peace with Christ, she discovered him giving her a new attitude of peace toward her family. Slowly, loving relationships grew between Tembi and the mother and siblings she never really knew. With the help of this, uh, this Christian woman, Tembi finished high school and moved to Durban, where, by God's providence, she met another woman who was sort of a second mother to her, uh, who took her in, helped her find uh, work. And um, while she was there, she got a phone call from a relative one of Tembi's older sisters had died, leaving four children behind. By now, Tembi was visiting her mother and older siblings regularly, slowly healing the relationships she had missed in her childhood. This death came as a heavy blow. Tembi went home to her mother's house and paid for her sister's funeral. 
As the visitors returned home, Tembi found herself in her mother's home, holding in her arms the youngest orphan nephew, still just a baby. As she stared into his round eyes, she saw herself there. Had anyone cradled her like this? Had anyone sung to her? Was this baby destined to experience the same abandonment and fear that marked her childhood? When Tembi went home to Durban, she carried with her this youngest orphan boy. She resolved to give the child the best she could. But then another sister died, and another one died, and another one died, and another one died. As Tembi repeated the words, tears pooled in her eyes. She stopped when her voice gave out. Eventually, there was just one sister left. She had four children. The last one was born of the mother's rape. The sister's husband had committed suicide just a year before the rape. And after she was raped, Tembi said of her sister, she was disturbed in the head. She hated everything in this world. She left the oldest sons caring for the cows. They ate food from the rubbish can. They slept outside. They did not go to school. Eventually, the, the sister refused food and medicine, and she barely spoke. Finally, on February 9th, 2005, she passed away, the last of Tembi's siblings. Until then, Tembi had tried to be strong. She had held her job, sent money for the children and her mother, and paid for funeral after funeral. Now, something snapped. She could carry no more. Tembi went through a pretty hard stretch. But a neighbor who knew her and cared about her uh, told a local um, Christian ministry about her, um, had some ties to the U.S. actually, and um, they took care of her and the kids for a couple of years, provided housing and food and um, counseling, helped her get on her feet again, uh, to the extent that then she started to build a house. The move would not be easy. She and her aging mother would be hard-pressed to earn money and care for the children. Tembi had nearly completed a local computer course. Catch you up. There's Tembi. And she had a little bit of income through a Zulu beaded crafts organization. But combining that with some welfare money, it would still be a stretch to feed the large family. Even if she could leave the children while she found work, her home was in a rural area where job opportunities are few. As a rare 30-year-old woman without a boyfriend or children of her own, Tembi learned to rely heavily on prayer and faith in God. Her story had no prince and no fairy godmother, but one good God is shaping a happy ending not only for Tembi, but also for the second generation of Cinderella, Cinderella children that she cares for. She says, I keep trusting God and I don't give up. I open my Bible and I sing. And I like to pray very loud. And God is very faithful. I know what he did for me. Tembi is a picture of someone who has received the invitation from the Lord, who has accepted the invitation, and who now radically extends it to others.
I think we in North America need to hear more stories like Tempe's. Part of my story at the UW that didn't get shared is that I was part of crew while I was a student. And so I benefited from the ministry of the Tanners and Dean Waldenmeyer and maybe others who've been involved at High Point through the years. Um, but Chrissy and I were kind of odd birds. And uh, as soon as we finished at the UW, we moved to Nicaragua. We wanted to figure out what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor. Um, in Luke. So through a friend of a friend, we found an organization that helped us find a village where we could live in Nicaragua. We didn't raise any money. We just went and were very poor. We were sort of adopted by the village. Uh, they gave us a room in a barn with a little window with a wood slider to open and close it. And in the village, the work was brutal. Um, you may recall that Nicaragua is in the tropics, and um, it's hot all the time in the tropics. And so uh, when we had to weed a cornfield with a machete, uh, bent over, chopping out the grass, that was really, really hard. And uh, when we had to search for rocks in the forest to move to a different part of the forest to build an anti-erosion dike, uh, that was really hard, too, because it was like 95 degrees. On top of it, I was sick. Um, a few weeks after we got there, I started having these burps that tasted like eggs, sulfurous. And uh, I was all bloated. And there were other symptoms, too. Uh, I got tested, and sure enough, I had Giardia. And uh, Giardia is this amoeba that lives in your guts. So I was like, great, I have Giardia. I'll take the meds. I'll, I'll fix it. So I took, took the meds. And um, two weeks later, I was burping the eggs again. So it was in the water. I was stuck. There was nothing that uh, I could have done during the year to avoid it or get rid of it uh, on a more permanent basis. So I had to just live with my little buddies, the amoebas. Now, um, in the midst of that, uh, some really well-meaning friends, uh, three separate ones, quoted to me James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Really didn't want to hear that. But then it got worse. Shortly after the doctor diagnosed my Giardia, Christmas came, and we were excited to host Chrissy's family for a visit. The day before we were to head down to the city, I got sick, really sick, not just Giardia sick. I got weak by mid-morning. I laid down, and that didn't really help. I lost my appetite, a real rarity for me. And then the fever hit, 100, 101, 102. 103, 104. We watched the mercury thermometer we brought keep ascending. I started to lose my ability to concentrate as the evening came on. 
The sun sat on Chrissy trying to read in our copy of Where There Is No Doctor by flashlight to discern what might be happening, how serious it was, and what she could do to make sure I didn't die on top of a Nicaraguan mountain. Her research pointed toward dengue fever or malaria. In any case, she needed to treat the symptoms. I felt frigid, but my fever stayed up in a dangerous range. She followed the handbook's instructions, stripping me down to shorts despite my feeble, delirious protests and swabbing me with a damp cloth to cool my overheated 23-year-old body. It was torturous. I was lying on her cot, shivering, with Chrissy making me still colder. My teeth were chattering as my body burned. I was afraid the noise would keep our neighbors in the barn awake. Eventually, I got to sleep, and the fever broke as the pre-dawn nighttime sky began to gray. At 5 a.m., Chrissy got me dressed and into the wagon of the trailer, sitting on a spare tire behind the big blue Ford tractor. Six hours later, we got to Managua, got some medicine, and received Chrissy's family. Joy to the world, indeed. Uh, this chapter is entitled, All I Got for Christmas Was Malaria. So between work, giardia, malaria, and a general sense that our work wasn't helping our friends in El Porvenir much at all, my attitude and sense of identity were at all-time lows. Why were we here? Why was the God I followed not caring for me? Would our time here help at all? Why wasn't I feeling blessed when I was with the poor who Jesus said were blessed? It was a hard year. The village of El Porvenir was a coffee-producing cooperative. The year we were there, the world coffee market went into a tailspin, dropping to the lowest price in 50 years. The village couldn't sell their coffee even just to break even. They would do better not to even harvest it, letting tons of certified organic coffee beans rot in the forest. As a coffee lover and friend to our village, I thought I could help in this one area. I started going down to the city, making calls, visiting people, trying to find anyone who was dealing fair trade coffee from Nicaragua. I had no clue what I was doing. What are the laws and tariffs on Nicaraguan exports? How do you buy a shipping container? What's the best way to contact Starbucks? <laughs> I eventually found a cooperative in Managua that was looking for certified organic beans from small producers and would pay fair trade prices, about double the market rate at the time. That would make it worth the trouble of harvesting and even put a solid profit in the pockets at El Porvenir. Through word of mouth, I heard of a man named Marcos, a gringo who was part of a coffee buying co-op. I asked our village's coffee producing co-op leader, Raul, to head down the mountain with me to meet him. They'd actually heard of one another but hadn't met, and my neighbor was skittish. I explained that I thought it was probably a good idea. They were actual buyers and wanted to pay a fair price for organic beans. All went well, and after a couple months and a thousand questions, a deal was done. I connected Raul and the coffee cooperative to good people, and it was at just the right time. They got a great price, and this made sure our friends, all 40 families, would have a pretty good year. Even with Giardi in my guts, I felt pretty good that day. But within a week, I was thinking more about my eggy burps, the latrine, and my inadequacies more than anything else. It's hard to gain perspective, and it's very hard to keep it. Ten years later, Chrissy and I were speaking at an international development conference in Michigan. They had a fair trade fair. We were trying to buy some gifts for friends we were going to visit. I wandered over to a table and picked up a bag of coffee. Raoul's picture 
was on the bag of coffee. I stammered to the student selling the coffee, where did you get this? That's Raul. I've had dinner at his house. Why is my friend on your coffee? Chrissy, they have El Porvenir's coffee. And I walked away with the coffee. (laughs) I did go back and pay for it. For 10 years, this seemingly serendipitous connection had been bearing fruit. El Porvenir kept this reliable buyer at a great certified organic and fair trade price. Moreover, the buyers brought volunteer teams to provide basic health care, from vaccinations to dental care. They helped put in a well at the bottom of the mountain and ran water pipes all the way up the mountain to the village. They built a small school so they no longer had to meet on the patio of the barn where we'd lived. My stupid, painful year actually did a whole bunch of good for the village. It sure doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes God does amazing things through our grumpy obedience in the midst of suffering. And sometimes we even get to see it. Now in the category of it's a small world, after the first service, Dietrich Gruen came up to me and um, Dietrich has been to El Porvenir. He and his son have been on some of the volunteer teams that the buyers co-op that I connected the village to have taken up to the village. The well, the school, the dental clinic. So that was pretty cool. So, um, that's some of the uh, um, out there kind of stuff. What about here and now? Uh, Our book is really asking that question. uh, And it's not, there's no easy answers in it. We we're still wrestling with how to live out biblical faith here. It was, um, it was hard to enter back in. It continues to be hard to see how to live out a faith that befits followers of Jesus in our culture. Um, some of the things that we're trying, though, um, you don't have to go to the other side of the planet to do, um, to join in God's mission. Um, I'm trying to get together with a friend who uh, has gone through a divorce, who needs a friend and moreover needs Jesus. My family loves the World Vision catalog, you know, where you can buy a flock of chickens for somebody or a llama or some vaccinations. Uh, There's a younger married couple in our church and we realize, wow, we've been married 14 years now. We probably have learned something that would be helpful to them, right? Uh, just before Thanksgiving, uh, my wife was able to meet someone that we'd both been trying to meet, a guy who lives under the Beltline by us, um, and uh, talked to him. She invited him to Thanksgiving. He ended up not being able to come, apparently. Uh, but Chrissy and the kids went shopping and bought a bunch of stuff that would be helpful to a guy living outside in the winter in Wisconsin and uh, took that to him. We try to be radically hospitable. Uh, Our Thanksgiving that we invited this guy to, uh, a bunch of random people from different parts of life did come. People, international students, people who didn't have uh, other places to go. And uh, I'll share this message, you know, this recording on Facebook so that um, from experience I know that I'm on Facebook all the time. uh, And I know that there's people who know me from long ago and far away who kind of keep tabs on me because of that. And they're not Christians, but they're curious, and they're, inter- they're 
They want to know more about why does Adam believe Jesus or who is the God that Adam follows or what's different about Adam. And so they, they listen to stuff that I post and um, this will be one of those things. And it's another opportunity for me to um, point them toward um, what is true. So I don't know what the things are for you in Madison. You need to ask yourself and the Lord that question. Um, I know that there's small groups here at High Point as well, so uh, maybe that's a discernment process together that you can point out things that um, you, know, you don't necessarily see in your own life, but the others might be able to point out to you a way that you can um, you know, join in God's mission right here. But what I... Um, when I was in high school, I heard Tony Campolo preach. He was in one of the people mentioned in the video, or shown in the video from Urbana 87. And he said, after what Jesus did for me, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for him. And I, that's stuck with me and has really been the, the summary that has led me to do all these different things. So I might be wasting my life but I think that it might be worth it. And I continue to say each day after what Jesus did for me, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for him. And I would invite you to say the same. Thanks.